Chapter Two of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Two. Who shall assuage thy griefs, thou tempest-tossed, and speak of comfort, comfortless to thee? Emily Taylor. Gertie awoke the next morning. Not as children wake who are roused by each other's merry voices, or by a parent's kiss, who have kind hands to help them dress, and know that a nice breakfast awaits them. But she heard harsh voices below, knew from the sound that the men who lived at Nan Grant's, her son and two or three boarders, had come in to breakfast, and that her only chance of obtaining any share of the meal was to be on the spot when they had finished. To take that portion of what remained which Nan might chance to throw or shove towards her. So she crept downstairs, waited a little out of sight, until she smelt the smoke of the men's pipes as they passed through the passage. And when they had all gone noisily out, she slid into the room, looking about her with a glance made up of fear and defiance. She met but a rough greeting from Nan, who told her she had better drop that ugly, sour look, eat some breakfast if she wanted it. But take care and keep out of her way, and not come near the fire, plaguing round where she was at work, or she'd get another dressing, worse than she had last night. Gertie had not looked for any other treatment, so there was no disappointment to bear, but glad enough of the miserable food left for her on the table, swallowed it eagerly, and waiting no second bidding to keep herself out of the way, took her little old hood, threw on a ragged shawl which had belonged to her mother. And which had long been the child's best protection from the cold, and though her hands and feet were chilled by the sharp air of the morning, ran out of the house. Back of the yard where Nan Grant lived was a large wood and coal yard, and beyond that a wharf, and the thick muddy water of a dock. Gertie might have found playmates enough in the neighborhood of this place. She sometimes did mingle with the troops of boys and girls, equally ragged with herself, who played about in the yard, but not often. There was a league against her among the children of the place, poor, ragged, and miserably cared for, as most of them were. They all knew that Gertie was still more neglected and abused. They had often seen her beaten, and daily heard her called an ugly, wicked child, told that she belonged to nobody and had no business in anyone's house. Children as they were, they felt their advantage and scorned the little outcast. Perhaps this would not have been the case if Gertie had ever mingled freely with them, and tried to be on friendly terms. But while her mother lived there with her, though it was but a short time, she did her best to keep her little girl away from the rude herd. Perhaps that habit of avoidance, but still more, a something in the child's nature, kept her from joining in their rough sports after her mother's death had left her to do as she liked. As it was, she seldom had any intercourse with them. Nor did they venture to abuse her, otherwise than in words, for singly they dared not cope with her. Spirited, sudden, and violent, she had made herself feared as well as disliked. Once a band of them had united in a plan to tease and vex her, but Nan Grant, coming up at the moment when one of the girls was throwing the shoes, which she had pulled from Gertie's feet into the dock, had given the girl a sound whipping and put them all to flight. Gertie had not had a pair of shoes since. But Nan Grant, for once, had done her good service, and the children now left her in peace. It was a sunshiny, though a cold day, when Gertie ran away from the house to seek shelter in the woodyard. There was an immense pile of timber in one corner of the yard, almost out of sight of any of the houses. 
Of different lengths and unevenly placed, the planks formed, on one side, a series of irregular steps, by means of which it was easy to climb up. Near the top was a little sheltered recess, overhung by some long planks, and forming a miniature shed, protected by the wood on all sides but one, and from that looking out upon the water. This was Gertie's haven of rest, her sanctum, and the only place from which she never was driven away. Here, through the long summer days, the little lonesome girl sat, brooding over her griefs, her wrongs, and her ugliness, sometimes weeping for hours. Now and then, when the course of her life had been smooth for a few days, that is, when she had been so fortunate as to offend no one, and had escaped whipping, or being shot up in the dark, she would get a little more cheerful, and enjoy watching the sailors belonging to a schooner hard by, as they labored on board their vessel, or occasionally rowed to and fro in a little boat. The warm sunshine was so pleasant, and the men's voices at their work so lively, that the poor little thing would for a time forget her woes. But summer had gone, the schooner and the sailors, who had been such pleasant company, had gone too. The weather was now cold, and for a few days it had been so stormy that Gertie had been obliged to stay in the house. Now, however, she made the best of her way to her little hiding-place, and to her joy the sunshine had reached the spot before her, dried up the boards, so that they felt warm to her bare feet, and was still shining so bright and pleasant that Gertie forgot Nan Grant, forgot how cold she had been, and how much she dreaded the long winter. Her thoughts rambled about some time, but at last settled down upon the kind look and voice of the old lamplighter. And then, for the first time since the promise was made, it came into her mind that he had engaged to bring her something the next time he came. She could not believe he would remember it. But still, he might. He seemed to be so good-natured, and sorry for her fall. What could he mean to bring? Would it be something to eat? Oh, if it were only some shoes— but he wouldn't think of that. Perhaps he did not notice, but she had some. At any rate, Gertie resolved to go for her milk in season to be back before it was time to light the lamp, so that nothing should prevent her seeing him. The day seemed unusually long, but darkness came at last. And with it came True, or rather Truman, Flint, for that was the lamplighter's name. Gertie was on the spot, though she took good care to elude Nan Grant's observation. True was late about his work that night, and in a great hurry. He had only time to speak a few words in his rough way to Gertie, but they were words coming straight from as good and honest a heart as ever throbbed. He put his great smutty hand on her head in the kindest way, told her how sorry he was she got hurt, and said, It was a plaguey shame that she should have been whipped, too, and all for a spill o' milk. That was a misfortin, and no crime." "'But here,' added he, diving into one of his huge pockets, "'here's the critter I promised you. "'Take good care on it. "'Don't abuse it. "'And I'm guessin', if it's like the mother that I've got at home, "'won't be a little you'll be likin' it, for you're done. "'Good-bye, my little gal.' "'And he shouldered his ladder and went off, "'leaving in Gertie's hands a little grey and white kitten. "'Gertie was so taken by surprise on finding in her arms a live kitten, "'something so different from what she had anticipated.' that she stood, for a minute, irresolute what to do with it. There were a great many cats, of all sizes and colors, inhabitants of the neighboring houses and yard, frightened-looking creatures, which, like Gertie herself, crept or scampered about, and often hid themselves among the wood and coal, seeming to feel, as she did, great doubts about their having a right to be anywhere. 
Gertie had often felt a sympathy for them, but never thought of trying to catch one, carry it home, and tame it, for she knew that food and shelter were most grudgingly accorded to herself, and would not certainly be extended to her pets. Her first thought, therefore, was to throw the kitten down and let it run away. But while she was hesitating, the little animal pleaded for itself in a way she could not resist. Frightened by its long imprisonment and journey in true Flint's pocket, it crept from Gertie's arms up to her neck, clung there tight, and with its low, feeble cries seemed to ask her to take care of it. Its eloquence prevailed over all fear of Nan Grant's anger. She hugged Pussy to her bosom, and made a childish resolve to love it, feed it, and above all, keep it out of Nan's sight. How much she came in time to love that kitten, no words can tell. Her little, fierce, untamed, impetuous nature had hitherto only expressed itself in angry passion, sullen obstinacy, and even hatred. But there were in her soul fountains of warm affection yet unstirred, a depth of tenderness never yet called out, and a warmth and devotion of nature that wanted only an object to expend themselves upon. So she poured out such a wealth of love on the little creature that clung to her for its support as only such a desolate little heart has to spare. She loved the kitten all the more for the care she was obliged to take of it, and the trouble and anxiety it gave her. She kept it as much as possible, out among the boards, in her own favorite haunt. She found an old hat, in which she placed her own hood, to make a bed for pussy. She carried it a part of her own scanty meals. She braved for it what she would not have done for herself for she almost every day abstracted from the kettle, when she was returning with the milk for Nan Grant, enough for pussy's supper, running the risk of being discovered and punished, the only risk or harm the poor ignorant child knew or thought of, in connection with the theft and deception, for her ideas of abstract right and wrong were utterly undeveloped. She would play with her kitten for hours among the boards, talk to it, and tell it how much she loved it. But when the days were very cold, she was often puzzled to know how to keep herself warm out of doors, and the risk of bringing the kitten into the house was great. She would then hide it in her bosom, and run with it into the little garret room where she slept, and taking care to keep the door shut, usually eluded Nan's eyes and ears. Once or twice, when she had been off her guard, her little playful pet had escaped from her, and scampered through the lower room and passage. Once, Nan drove it out with a broom, but in that thickly peopled region, as we have said, cats and kittens were not so uncommon as to excite inquiry. It may seem strange that Gertie had leisure to spend all her time at play. Most children living among the poorer class of people learn to be useful even while they are very young. Numbers of little creatures, only a few years old, may be seen in our streets, about the yards and doors of houses, bending under the weight of a large bundle of sticks, a basket of shavings, or more frequently yet, a stout baby, nearly all the care of which devolves upon them. We have often pitied such little drudges, and thought their lot a hard one. But, after all, it was not the worst thing in the world. They were far better off than Gertie, who had nothing to do at all, and had never known the satisfaction of helping anybody. Nan Grant had no babies, and being a very active woman, with but a poor opinion of children's services at the best, she never tried to find employment for Gertie, much better satisfied if she would only keep out of her sight, so that, except her daily errand for the milk, Gertie was always idle, a fruitful source of unhappiness and discontent, if she had suffered from no other. Nan was a Scotchwoman, 
no longer young, and with a temper which, never good, became worse and worse as she grew older. She had seen life's roughest side, had always been a hard-working woman, and had the reputation of being very smart and a driver. Her husband was a carpenter by trade, but she made his home so uncomfortable that for years he had followed the sea. She took in washing, and had a few boarders, by means of which she earned what might have been an ample support for herself, had it not been for her son, an unruly, disorderly young man, spoilt in early life by his mother's uneven temper and management, and who, though a skillful workman when he chose to be industrious, always squandered his own, and a large part of his mother's earnings. Nan, as we have said, had reasons of her own for keeping Gertie, though they were not so strong as to prevent her often having half a mind to rid herself of the encumbrance. End of chapter 2